Good evening, I'm Aaron Mastani, and this is Tiski Sour on Navara Media. What a day it has been. I'm joined by Ash Sarka to discuss a truly extraordinary sequence of events. Ash, how are you? I am torn between the feeling of extreme schadenfreude at watching the Tory party rip itself apart all because they became too arrogant and appointed a libertarian bear of very little brain to be their party leader and also extreme fear and concern for the direction of the country particularly as we seem to be heading towards austerity 2.0 so I'm ambivalent I've got to say. The new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has today reversed almost all of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's binfire of a mini-budget. Despite causing chaos in the markets, the government had hoped to wait until October 31st to give further details. But that delay only added to market turmoil. Mounting pressure meant that last week Truss sacked Kwarteng and U-turned on her plan to cut corporation tax. And that was on top of the U-turn on the cut to the 45p rate of tax. But it wasn't enough. Hunt gave this surprise intervention today to calm the chaos, and he parted ways with the Prime Minister dramatically. The government has today decided to make further changes to the mini-budget and to reduce unhelpful speculation about what they are. We've decided to announce these ahead of the medium-term fiscal plan, which happens in two weeks. I'll give a detailed statement to Parliament this afternoon and answer questions from MPs. But because these decisions are market sensitive, I've agreed with the Speaker the need to give an early, brief summary of the changes, which are all designed to provide confidence and stability. So these changes aren't designed for the benefit of the British people, but for the markets, perhaps a sign of things to come from Hunt. Let's start with the biggest change as far as ordinary people are concerned. The biggest single expense in the growth plan was the energy price guarantee. This is a landmark policy supporting millions of people through a difficult winter. And today I want to confirm that the support we are providing between now and April next year will not change. But beyond that, the Prime Minister and I have agreed it would not be responsible to continue exposing public finances to unlimited volatility in international gas prices. So I'm announcing today a Treasury-led review into how we support energy bills beyond April next year. The objective is to design a new approach that will cost the taxpayer significantly less than planned, whilst ensuring enough support for those in need. Any support for businesses will be targeted to those most affected and the new approach will better incentivise energy efficiency. So energy bills will be capped at £2,500 the average household until April. But after that, who knows? And let's just remind ourselves of what that might mean. This graph from the New Statesman shows what the forecast for energy bills was in August. You can see that households were facing annual energy bills rising to around 3500 this month and to nearly 5500 in January next year. Now, under the government's plans, even now, these will stay significantly lower until next spring. But look at what's forecast to happen in April. Annual bills of around £6,600. In his address, Hunt talks about making a new plan that would give enough support just to those in need. But if energy bills hit £6,600 in April, surely that will be most people. And you'd have caught the Tories' favourite word for austerity here. The new approach will, quote, better incentivise energy efficiency. 
Ash, is this a major political error from the Tories to potentially roll back on the one good thing they've done? It looks like it really could be, because as you said, bills of £6,600 are going to impact pretty much everybody apart from the super wealthy. And even they might need to cut back on the caviar and cocaine just a little bit in order to heat their mansions. But this presents particular electoral problems for the Conservative Party. It's going to be something which impacts an awful lot of their own electoral coalition. Older people, retirees, homeowners, they're going to be feeling the pinch as well as people who they've written off in terms of ever voting for them. Normally, you know, nominally young people and people who are in rented accommodation. So it's going to really impact those cohorts in the Conservative Party coalition. The second thing is that if you've got people having to pay these enormous energy bills, they're going to be spending a lot less in the economy elsewhere. So that means really you are looking at some form of economic contraction, a recession, which is the one thing that the Conservatives stake themselves on, right? Does, you know, the economy is growing, we're, we're going to avoid a recession at any and all costs. So those things really do seem to be on the table if bills go up that high. There is no cheap way of getting out of this particular inflationary crisis. Um, we've wasted the decade of historically low interest rates. So during that time, the government didn't borrow to invest in things like retrofitting homes, insulating homes, or investing in the kind of green infrastructure, which would have meant that we'd have some kind of sustainable energy sovereignty. Instead, we maintained our reliance on imported gas, which made us really vulnerable to this kind of price volatility. And by April, those aren't things which are going to have changed. We're not going to have magically had much better insulated housing stock. We're not going to magically have less reliance on gas and in particular imported gas. And we're not going to magically have probably an end to the conflict in Ukraine. So this is a major bit of can kicking from Jeremy Hunt. And what it's going to do is make households feel a lot more vulnerable and precarious. Because if the support doesn't continue after April, it means that it's ordinary households footing the bill for something which is, frankly, inaffordable for most people. Let's take a look at other parts of the mini-budget that Hunt scrapped earlier today. Firstly, we will reverse almost all the tax measures announced in the growth plan three weeks ago that have not started parliamentary legislation. So whilst we will continue with the abolition of the health and social care levy and stamp duty changes, we will no longer be proceeding with the cuts to dividend tax rates, the reversal of off-payroll working reforms introduced in 2017 and 2021, the new VAT-free shopping scheme for non-UK visitors, or the freeze on alcohol duty rates. Secondly, the government's current plan is to cut the basic rate of income tax to 19% from April 2023. It is a deeply held conservative value, a value that I share, that people should keep more of the money they earn. But at a time when markets are rightly demanding commitment to sustainable public finances, it is not right to borrow to fund this tax cut. So I've decided that the basic rate of income tax will remain at 20%, and it will do so indefinitely until economic circumstances allow for it to be cut. 
So that's basically every policy pledge Truss and Kuateng made. Trashed. So what's left? The reversal of Sunak's April national insurance rise will stay, but only because legislation had already been put before Parliament. And the only other parts of the mini-budget that survived are both promises that help the better off. Hunt will keep Kuateng's plan to raise the threshold for stamp duty. That's what happens when you buy a property, you pay stamp duty. And he also hasn't reversed the former Chancellor's pledge to scrap the cap on bankers' bonuses. Hunt ended by sounding a darker note about his plans to come. There will be more difficult decisions, I'm afraid, on both tax and spending as we deliver our commitment to get debt falling as a share of the economy over the medium term. All departments will need to redouble their efforts to find savings, and some areas of spending will need to be cut. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Trust had hoped to jumpstart the economy by borrowing money to stimulate growth through tax cuts. A fantasy, sure. But Hunt's 180 is taking us right back to the 2010s and austerity. And remember, this is all to deal with the market fallout that his own prime minister caused, a mistake we're being asked to pay for. Ash, what do you think the consequences will be if the government does indeed embark on austerity 2.0? It's going to be nothing short of disastrous for ordinary people and for the delivery of public services because austerity 1.0 was a false economy. The impact of cutting public spending so brutally was that you created an awful lot of very expensive problems. So one area in which you can see that, of course, is with the NHS by strangling funding in the way that the Cameron Osborne government did. What you did is you created a beds crisis. You created healthcare problems in terms of the reversal of life expectancy in areas of high deprivation. And you also created an exodus of doctors from the NHS. So that created problems which made us really vulnerable in the COVID-19 pandemic and which were very, very expensive to address. Other areas which were expensive to address, of course, being things like homelessness, children's social care, um, the awful state of housing, particularly in uh, council housing and the increase in need for emergency accommodation. These are all things which were really expensive to solve. So what you have is an increased pressure on public services, which is the direct result of the last 12 years of policymaking. And now Jeremy Hunt is saying, OK, well, we're going to try and deal with that by cutting services even more. What that's going to do is impact the people who are reliant on those services. And so even if you're someone who isn't reliant on council housing or emergency temporary accommodation, you are going to be seeing the impact of those public service cuts in the quality of care you receive from the NHS, the state of your kids' schools, and even just things like rubbish collections and litter and the state of your lived environment. These are all going to have really deleterious effects on the quality of most people's living. And the one thing that I'm going to say about uh, the part of the mini budget which has been left intact, which is the uh, stamp duty cut, that really is an attempt to uh, shore up house prices. Because every time there's a stamp duty cut, what happens instead is that the money that would have been spent on stamp duty just gets walloped right on top of asking prices. And because interest rates for mortgages have gone up and are likely to stay up, this is simply a way of going, well, hang on, we've punished this section of our voter base, which is homeowners. And of course, half of all Tory voters own their homes outright as well. We've 
imperiled house prices and the asset price appreciation. So here's our attempt to try and keep it where it is. I think it's going to be a bit too little too late. And of course, all of those people are going to be highly impacted by the spiraling cost of energy in April. But this shows you something about conservative priorities, about who's considered expendable and who's considered worthy of protection. Ash, do you think it's possible to implement this? If you do see a massive rise in energy bills after April, if you do see austerity 2.0, it's important to say in 2019, 75% of the electorate voted for either the Labour Party or the Conservatives, neither of which ran on a promise to repeat what happened between 2010-2016. I drastically make cuts to public spending. Do, do you think it's actually possible that what we're seeing now from the Tories could even see their, their poll rating fall further? I think it could do, but there are two major variables here in terms of whether or not it's going to affect them in a negative way politically. One is, of course, what are Labour going to do here? And what you saw today from Jeremy Hunt was an attempt to replay some of the strategies from 2010-2015. After the response from Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, he rounded on her and said, well, look, if you're serious about public finances, are you going to back reductions in public spending? Now, that was the exact narrative which was deployed between 2010 and 2015. And of course, the Labour Party being led by Ed Miliband at that time accepted an awful lot of that very framing. Now, there is, of course, a strong rebuttal to this, which is Labour turn around and they say, well, look at billionaire wealth, that increased during the pandemic. Look at the record profits being posted by oil and gas giants. What we're going to do is pay for public services by taxing wealth. But that's going to take some political bravery on that their part. And that's not necessarily something which has been in high supply amongst Keir Starmer's Labour Party. The second thing is, what is the media reception of this going to be? Now, of course, the Corbyn years did change a lot of what was the received common sense about austerity. The conversation moved on from there is no alternative to being able to look at some of the impacts that budget cuts have had on the economy as a whole. But that really is dependent on what the media chooses to notice at any given time. And one of the problems with Liz Truss being sort of presented as this uniquely incompetent and idiotic leader, which, you know, she absolutely is, is that attention is pulled away from how her premiership is itself a result of years and years of Tory party mismanagement of both the economy and our democracy. So having the return of austerity without a mandate from the people, I think is totally undemocratic and really does fly in the face of every democratic norm that this country is supposed to hold. But if you've got a media culture, which is kind of in the mood for, oh, we long for the return of the technocrats and the grown-ups, and oh, isn't it good that idiotic Liz Truss is disempowered, then maybe some of the attention and some of the scrutiny of austerity that there should be simply won't happen. Yeah, this idea of Jeremy Hunt as the UK's Mario Monti is an interesting one. You know, the technocrat without any expertise wouldn't be surprising. In his common statement, Hunt also announced a new Economic Advisory Council. Announcing today the formation of a new Economic Advisory Council to do just that. This council will advise the government on economic policy with four names announced today. Rupert Harrison, former Chief of Staff to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. 
Gertz Jan Vlieger from Element Capital, Sushil Wadwani of Wadwani Asset Management, and Karen Ward of JP Morgan. So who are those people that Hunt named there? Well, Rupert Harrison is a portfolio manager at BlackRock, an asset management firm. Before that, he was advisor to former chancellor and austerity architect George Osborne. Gert-Jan Vlieger is a hedge fund manager, while Sushil Wanwani and Karen Ward are both asset managers. In short, a bunch of bankers. Having them advise the government on reinvigorating the economy is like getting Jeffrey Dahmer and Hunter S. Thompson to help run a wellness retreat. These people are the last kinds of individual you would want to ask to solve this particular problem. And yet, precisely what the Tories do. Just minutes after new Chancellor Jeremy Hunt publicly torched Liz Truss's economic agenda, the Daily Mail splashed this on the front page of their website. Hunt is de facto PM. When the Daily Mail says a Tory leader is done, they are done. And a further sign of the Prime Minister's fading relevance, she failed to turn up to the House of Commons to answer an urgent question tabled by the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Penny Mordaunt, leader of the House, turned up instead. Thank you, Mr Speaker, to ask the Prime Minister to make a statement on the replacement of the Chancellor of the Exchequer during the current economic situation. <laughs> Mr Speaker, with, with, apologies, with apologies to the Leader of the Opposition and the House, the PM is detained on urgent business. Now, after just 42 days in office, Tory MPs have begun trying to oust the Prime Minister, that's Liz Truss, in earnest. According to iNews, up to 100 Tories have written to Graham Brady demanding votes of no confidence in Liz Truss, MPs believe. That's from this evening. The article goes on to say this. One veteran Tory told I he will have letters piling up against the back of his door. He'll be pushing the door open with a few people because of all the letters piling up the back of it. The party's rules state the leader is safe from a formal challenge for their first year in office, meaning that in principle, Ms. Truss cannot face a confidence, that should be PM Truss, surely, cannot face a confidence vote before September 2023. Thereafter, votes can take place no more than once every 12 months. But Sir Geoffrey Clifton Brown, that is a very Tory name, treasurer of the 1922 committee, insisted that a vote could be held if the committee's officers believed there was overwhelming demand for one. Of course, we have the power to change the rules he told the BBC. Those letters to the 1922 committee are secret. Only its chair, Sir Graham Brady, is allowed to read them. But so far, only five Tory MPs have publicly called for trust to go. They are Crispin Blunt, Jamie Wallace, Andrew Bridgen, Angela Richardson and Charles Walker. However, behind closed doors, things are very different. The Telegraph's Christopher Hope has reported this. Last night, I was sent a single WhatsApp message from a prominent member of the 2019 intake of Tory MPs. The message said, quote, Rishi PM, Hunt Chancellor, Penny Foreign Secretary, and it's a done deal. MPs are also freely briefing against trust to journalists. The FT Sebastian Payne posted this on social media. One Tory party insider says of Hunt's statement, Quote, it's an utter humiliation of the Prime Minister. How can she not resign when her entire argument for the future of the country has been totally shredded? Meanwhile, the Observer's Michael Savage tweeted this. Tory MPs asking how on earth trust can be put through another hashtag PMQs. As one puts it, we've reached the pity stage. The bookies have started putting out odds on the next PM too. 
Rishi Sunak is the favourite by far, with Jeremy Hunt and Ben Wallace trailing behind. Even further behind, though, is Keir Starmer, meaning the bookies put more faith in a Tory coronation happening than a general election. Probably wise. Still, some Tories seem to be in complete denial. This WhatsApp chat was leaked to the Sunday Times journalist Gabriel Pogrant. No picks, but all the people I met today were either showing me pity or anger that we could let Labour in by being divided. That's from Michael Fabricant. Steve Double replies, Funny that, as everyone I've met this whole weekend is worried we will let Labour in due to the mistakes of the past month. Other Tories just wish they had a time machine. Responding to a story that said that Labour was preparing for government, Nadine Dorries tweeted this. Tory MPs who orchestrated the coup and consistently campaigned against Boris Johnson made this possible. Sunak, Hunt, Stride, Baker, Javid, Harper, et al. If he was still PM, Labour wouldn't be wasting their money because they would know they were facing another GE defeat. Ash, do you think the Tories would be doing significantly better if they'd kept Boris Johnson in number 10? No. Look, Nadine Dorries is doing her job, which is say any old mad shit that she can in support of Boris Johnson. I do think she's made some other good points about, you know, the democratic legitimacy of the Conservative Party picking another leader and effectively imposing another prime minister on the country. But this point about Boris Johnson doing so much better really is for the birds. One of the things about Boris Johnson is that I think as a politician, he has more discernible talents than Liz Truss. I think that he's been able to pick some better advisors. I think that he's got better populist instincts than Liz Truss. But without the vote leave team around him, he really became unmoored. He ended up sort of feeding, you know, many of the baser demands coming from his own party. And instead of focusing on shoring up those newly acquired red wall seats, he spent political capital on defending MPs like Owen Patterson, who were from, you know, Tory Shire safe seats. And strategically, that was the wrong decision. It meant that the lobby turned against him. And then all of those issues of integrity and probity, which were screamingly obvious from before he was even in high office, suddenly there was renewed attention on that. And that was what led to his downfall. If Boris Johnson were still in power, he would still be facing that kind of onslaught from the press, and it would be entirely his own fault. So no, I don't think that they would be better off with Boris Johnson. One thing that perhaps would still be there is the mandate from 2019, which was for levelling up increased public spending and moving money from London into the Midlands and the North. Now, There's not a huge amount of evidence that the Tory party were actually doing that under Boris Johnson in a particularly meaningful way. After the exit of Dominic Cummings, really levelling up became just a slogan. It was a placeholder for a set of values rather than an actual delivered policy platform. But that was what the 2019 mandate was for. Now, Liz Trust set that on fire and Jeremy Hunt is just pissed all over it. So I do think there's an argument about democratic legitimacy, but I don't think that the Conservative Party would be doing a whole lot better than they are now. We're talking about polling a little bit later on. It's an interesting question about if Boris would be doing better than this, because it is getting very bad for the Conservatives. Next story. 
Over the last few months, the Labour Party has begun selecting candidates for the next general election. That's likely to come in 2024, but given events over the last month, it could be even sooner. It's been a tough time for the party's left, with the selection of Pfizer Shaheen as the party's candidate in Chingford a rare win. Elsewhere, many candidates have been blocked from even getting on the long list, let alone being voted on by local party members. One candidate who knows what that feels like is Maurice McLeod, a councillor in South London who was blocked from making the long list in Camberwell and Peckham. And I'm joined by Maurice now. Maurice, explain to our audience the process of seeking to become a Labour candidate and how precisely you were blocked. Once uh, a seat becomes open, if you're a member and you're, uh, you know, of good standing or whatever, you can put your name in, you know, you know, for, for that seat. There's a sort of application process that gets looked through and I assume they make sure that, you know, you're at least ticking the boxes. Then it gets to a bit where they, they, they're going to go and decide the long list. But first you sort of run around trying to get endorsements and showing people who you are and hoping that you can get people to say, yeah, this is a good candidate for me. I happen to get um, uh, Unite and Aslef and, and a sort of string of mainly left-wing MPs, but also anti-racist sort of activists and journalists and, and you know, had, had a good spread. But before you're sort of put on a long list, there's a, a process, due diligence, due dil- I can never say that, a due diligence process where... Um, you know, your, your social media, your, your Googled, everything's trawled through to make sure that you're, in theory, to make sure that you're fit to be an MP, that you haven't done or said anything crazy that's going to sort of really shame the party. That's the bit that I've got stopped at. And, and I think it's kind of important to say that, that, I, that I was probably um, a little bit naively confident because absolutely I'm on the left and I'm very vocally on the left and, you know, I do the picket lines and I, you know, People know that, and I've never hidden that. I'm also um, you know, a lifelong anti-racist campaigner. And until a couple of weeks ago, I was running one of the nation's national anti-racism charities in Race on the Agenda. I have been a journalist for 30 years. You know, I was political editor from The Voice nearly 30 years ago. Um, I've been a councillor um, you know, for two terms recently, re-elected in Wandsworth. You know, where we took the council for the first time from the Tories in 44 years. And that's and so I kind of thought, maybe a little bit naively, that the party would go, oh, okay, yeah, he's on the left, but he's a reasonable person. You know, he's, an, he's a proper upstanding person and there's nothing uh, uh, untoward about him. Um, not least because I've been through four, since all of these events happened, I've been through four selection processes, twice as a councillor, once as uh, uh, once to uh, for a GLA seat, and once for the parliamentary seat for Vauxhall, where I was where I was longlisted. So, to be honest, I, I I kind of avoided getting into the detail of what the four things are. They're they're so minuscule. That I, you know, I w- I will happily talk about them, but I kind of think it's not the point. The point is, I wasn't blocked because of those. I was blocked because I'm a left winger, and there's a worry that someone's going to be troublesome or is going to be difficult if they if, if they're too left-wing it's it's a it's a absolute um i would say uh effort by the party to make sure that a seat like campbell and peckham one of the safest seat safest labor seats in the country with the biggest black populations they want to make sure that that doesn't fall into the hands of someone who might you know get them to try and be a bit transformative so just to be clear, one of the reasons why you um, you were blocked is because you like to tweet by the Green Party, is that correct? 
that's one of them. Like I say, I, the points are, I, I, I actually almost think it's a distraction talking about the actual reasons that they gave because, yeah, a, a tweet by a Green Party um, person who I, that I then uh, took down when I was told to, a, a, you know, a dispute between sort of uh, bits of the uh, Labour administration in Tottenham and I sided with the council tenants and was a little bit critical of the council. Both of those things, by the way, were before I was a councillor, so I was... A political journalist. I was talking about politics. It was literally doing my job, and yeah. uh, and and another thing where I there's a statement from me as a journalist again where I state uh, I give a, a, a comment on a controversial issue that was the line I give is exactly Labour's line was exactly Labour's line at that time. So um, and and the, the fourth thing is a uh, it was a Tory smear um, when I was quite a new councillor. It went nowhere. It ended up in no papers. I was, you know, there was no issue with me and my whip or anything like that. And as I say, it was four and a bit years ago. So I've been through loads of processes since. So it's a distraction to even get into the detail, I think, of, those, of each of those issues, because the real issue is they, they do not want socialists. Uh, they, want, they want to get they want to have as few socialists as possible to be in the Labour Party, I would argue. I can see your point there, Maurice, but I also think People look at the very low caliber of politicians in this country, and then people are being blocked on the basis that they've liked to tweet by, you know, the Green Party. I think most people think, well, it's not really that su- surprising when we have people completely incapable of actually solving problems. I mean, the Labour Party likes to pitch itself as, you know, the party of diversity, inclusion, anti-racism. Do you think that all kind of rings hollow in so much as, yes, they're willing to embrace black and brown candidates? But only as long as they agree with the party line on certain issues, and if you don't, well, fundamentally, you're irrelevant. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is one of the challenges with even how we think about diversity. You know, the, the Tory cabinet is very diverse. That therefore, you know, and what's the impact on race equality going to be? Very little. So, um, it's not. It's not just. Um, it's not just the race thing. I don't think. I think it's more. I think it's more of a socialist thing. I think it's more, I, I'm not sure that they are really comfortable with anyone that's actively calling for change, that any, anyone that, you know, that, that I think that feels all too radical. It's a bit too, um, you know, we are a party of government. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're not really um, in vogue, basically. Um, and I think it's because of the fear that we, as in left-wingers and people that, are active on picket lines and people that do turn up for, for demonstrations when black boys are shot in the street, you know, those sorts of uh, lunatics are seen as trouble. Um, instead of, this is what I guess the bit that makes me sad, instead of the party going brilliant, you know, this, you know, this is really connecting us to communities that, that maybe we struggle to connect to. And, you know, let's be a broad church and can totally see why. There's a space for, for left-wing anti-racist views, but I feel, I fear, I should say, that, that the party um, is scared of, of those voices. It makes, me, it makes me sad, to be honest, yeah. It's important to say that Maurice isn't alone in being blocked. Another victim of an internal stitch-up is Emma Dent-Code, who won the seat of Kensington for Labour for the very first time in 2017. She posted a statement to Twitter shortly after the news broke of her being blocked. And it's a third paragraph which gets right to the heart of the issue. Dent Code writing this. 
I have been outspoken in my politics, it is due to my passion and care for Kensington, for my neighbours and friends, and because of my burning desire to stamp out injustice and build a fairer, more equal society. Upsettingly, unaccountable Labour officials have exploited this outspokenness to unjustly prevent me from standing for the seat I won just five years ago. The seat I came agonisingly close to holding, even in 2019, despite the trade union backing which should have seen me long-listed automatically. It is as plain as day that the candidate selection process now being run by the party is being factionally abused and is not fit for purpose. According to Labour List, the decision to block Dent Code was made on the basis of, quote, concerns about her past social media activity, although precisely what activity isn't made clear. Rarely is. Given the low calibre of Britain's politicians, let's hope the media starts to care a little bit more about how Labour selects its candidates. Banning people for liking tweets is clearly absurd. No wonder we're in such an utter mess as a country. Next story. The Labour Party has recorded their biggest poll lead yet over Liz Truss's Conservatives. Redfield and Wilson have Keir Starmer's party on a massive 56% of the vote, 36 points above the Conservatives on just 20. Those changes, with the Tories down four points, are shifts from just four days ago. Yikes. But it gets even worse for the Tories because the distribution of their votes would see them become the fourth largest party in Parliament after Labour, the Lib Dems and the SNP. That's right, Labour would have 515 seats while the leader of the opposition would be Ed Davey. For clarity, the Tories have never finished fourth in a Westminster election, even before universal suffrage. It would be without precedent. Just as fatal for Truss are her personal approval ratings. She's now on minus 61%, which is extraordinary. But the collapse is truly mind-boggling. As you can see, Truss had a slight bump after announcing a major intervention with energy bills and hovered just above zero during the period of mourning for Queen Elizabeth II. But after the mini-budget, her approval ratings have collapsed, even after multiple U-turns. Ash, is this as bad as it gets for Liz Truss and the Tories, or could things get even worse? To paraphrase a famous song, things can only get not better. I mean, like, I think that there is worse to come because we haven't seen the full impact of the economic misery which is coming down the line. You still have a relative amount of insulation in terms of being protected from energy bills that might go in April. And in terms of the impact of mortgage interest rates, that's only going to be a problem which grows and grows. Now, as I said before, these are things which are going to impact Tory voters. In terms of trust, there is no real sense that she's going to be able to recover her authority. Effectively, what Jeremy Hunt has done today is say, look, don't worry, we've put her in the attic and she's not going to be let anywhere near economic policy ever again. So right now, she's only a prime minister in name. And perhaps that suits her quite well. She effectively became Conservative Party leader because she commissioned photo shoots which dressed her up as Margaret Thatcher. And um, being Prime Minister in name only might be something which is better suited to her capabilities as a politician. But that's not something which offers a route back into power, even if you're in office. So I do think that there's going to be worse to come for the Conservative Party and for Liz Truss, and there is a major problem for them, which is that cuts to public spending are not popular. We don't have a sense of there being a mandate 
for this even. And I do think that some of the media climate might have changed when it comes to austerity. That's not a bankable thing. Uh, What we know is that the lobby are inclined to examine what's politically expedient and ignore what's not. But I don't think that there is going to be the kind of carte blanche offered to huge public spending cuts this time around, the same way that there was 2010 to 2015. I wonder, Ash, because... We keep on thinking it can't get worse for the Conservatives, right? You know, when they were polling, for instance, the mid-20s, you know, a couple of weeks ago, and this started to really, the wheels started to fall off after the mini-budget. And the constant presumption is, this is the low point. And I wonder if somebody can collapse that quickly into their leadership, just three weeks into their leadership, why? You know, why can't the Tories go to 15% or, or, or lower? I know that sounds kind of stupid, but there's no sort of law of gravity which stops it. And... I don't know. I mean, it does feel kind of unprecedented. Like you say, the, the next several months really isn't in their favour. How, how seriously do you take these kinds of polls? Because, of course, we've had polls. Ed Miliband had 10, 15-point leads over David Cameron in the sort of early 2010s. Neil Kinnock had lots of, you know, leads before 1992. Before 1997, you know, Labour obviously had a landslide, but they only won that by, I think, 11 or 12%. Some polls had them sort of 20, 25% ahead of the Tories. Do you think this is realistic? Or do you think, actually, you know what, in two years, a lot of the dust has settled and we'll get quite a formulaic general election result. Yeah, Labour might have a majority, but it won't be, it won't be historic. Do you think we're setting ourselves up for a fall here? Well, look, a lot can change in two years. And one of those things might be Conservative Party leader. If you get a fresh face in, if they offer some policies which poll well, there might be some kind of recovery here. What we know about the Conservative Party is that they are the, you know, reinventors par excellence in British politics. They are really shapeshifters and they're quite canny in their ability to adapt to what's going on in the political and the media environment. But one thing which I think is really important important to point out here is that the first time the Conservatives have been pursuing economic policies which negatively impact homeowners. And every one of the gains that the Conservatives have made since 2001 has been based on the distribution of home ownership in the UK. Now, the minute you start really attacking them when it comes to things like interest rates, the value of their properties, and of course, rising energy bills, you are going to disincentivize them from turning out and voting for you. Now, that might not mean that they turn around and start voting for Keir Starmer. Many of them might indeed go for the Lib Dems instead, but they're not going to be turning out and voting Conservative if they feel that their economic interests are threatened. And that is exactly the kind of electoral coalition which Labour have been trying to put together for well over a decade now. One that can bring together people who are reliant on public services, people who are renters, people who are pensioners, people who are workers and people who own their own homes. The Conservatives have done it by accident. And I imagine there'll be lots of people who used to work in Jeremy Corbyn's political strategy team being like, fuck me, is Liz Trust one of ours? That's a great place to end tonight's show on. Thank you very much, Ash. Michael Walker will be back on Wednesday night from 7pm. For now, I've been Aaron Bastani. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.